This is Michelle. And I am Maddie. And this is Unsolved South, where we talk about mysteries, strange disappearances, and unsolved cases from the southern USA. Hey guys, we're back for another episode. What do you got for me today? Um, well, today I have the story of a missing 11-year-old girl. So, it's a interesting story. It's got a little twist to it. Ooh, I love twists. But, um, you know, obviously it's a sad story, so. As most disappearance cases are. Right. Naturally. Tell me the story. So, in 1977, the daughter of Mr. and Mrs. Tucker Gilliam, 11-year-old Phyllis Gilliam, she loves Sunday school. She had many friends, and she looked a little older than she was. She was always big for her age. She was 5'4", weighed about 100 pounds, black hair, brown eyes, beautiful brown skin. In the summer, August 16th to be exact, Phyllis was visiting her grandmother on the 2100 block of Saxon Place in Columbia, South Carolina. She had decided to walk down to the dry cleaner down the block. And back then, a lot of businesses, at least in the South, acted kind of like a corner store. So you could go get a Coke or a Moon Pie or, you know, whatever. Um, you know, I never really liked Moon Pies unless I put them in the microwave to warm uh, them up and make them explode. I don't like them like raw, if that makes sense. I don't know that it's raw, but yeah, I get what you're saying. But I remember when I was a kid, we used to ride uh, our bikes down to the corner store and we'd always get a Coke and a Moon Pie. Yeah. But I never really liked them either unless yeah. they were warm. Anyway, so her grandmother had no idea as she watched Phyllis walk out the door wearing her pretty black and white dress that it would be the last time she would ever see her grandbaby. Oh. We know from witness accounts that Phyllis did make it to the store. She was seen leaving and walking towards Two Notch Road, the opposite way from her grandmother's house. Hmm, where was she going then? We don't know. 11-year-old Phyllis Gilliam was never seen again. Oh. Um, I don't think I said, but uh, just so you know, because these roads may sound familiar to you, this is in Columbia, South Carolina, and Two Notch Road is a popular road in Columbia. Um, so, if it sounds familiar, that's why. And I'm telling you the roads because I actually went and looked it up to see what the route would have been. And it, it was close. It, it was like a, less than a half a mile. It was just a couple blocks from her grandmother's house to this business. So... I mean, it it was very close, but I, I wanted to go kind of look at the route and see what, you know, where it went, how far away it was, and all of that. So, that's why I'm giving the store, I mean, the road names. Um, the store's not there anymore, but, you know, you can go look it up and see the map of where it used to be. Yeah, you know, where it used to be. So... After talking to family and friends and hearing how much people thought of Phyllis, what type of child she was, the police believed that she was not a runaway. She would not have left of her own free will. So the police took this case very seriously, and so did the black community. 
they all worked tirelessly to find young Phyllis. Richland County Sheriff's Office and the Columbia City Police Department both had detectives assigned to the case. In fact, the city police had two detectives assigned working opposite shifts so they would put in 16-hour days. In later newspaper reports, Richland County Sheriff Frank Powell said that more man hours were put in on Phyllis's case than on any other missing case that he could remember. And quote, we came up with nothing. This case was personal to everyone involved. Captain Harry T. Snipes of the Columbia County Police, uh, Columbia City Police Department kept Phyllis's picture on his desk while he was investigating and then for years after. Sergeant Samuel P. of the Juvenile Division of the Richland County Sheriff's Office had, had kids of his own and they knew Phyllis personally. Friends and neighbors of Phyllis's family funded a reward for information leading to Phyllis's whereabouts. First $250 and then they came up with another 200. Local citizens canvassed the area when police could not. They searched houses, they questioned possible witnesses, and they walked the streets looking for clues. They shared what they found out with the police who were grateful for the help. The police and citizens really worked well together and every lead was investigated. Lie detector tests were administered to several people, including a parole violator from Pennsylvania, who Columbia City Police felt like was their only good suspect. But he passed two lie detector tests and they felt like they were out of leads. As time passed, the police believed that Phyllis had been taken and if she was able, she was smart. She would have found a way to contact the police or her family. And it looked more and more like something very bad had happened to Phyllis. Sergeant P turned, teared up as he told reporters that Phyllis's parents called him constantly and it was getting harder and harder for him to keep telling them that he didn't know anything new. Eight months later, on April 23rd, 1972, on Fort Jackson Military Base, about five miles away from where Phyllis had disappeared, Major Joe Woodward was cutting grass in front of his officer housing on Knight Avenue. His wife had gone to the commissary to get groceries and supplies, and his nine-year-old son, Michael, or Mike as they sometimes called him, was playing nearby in the yard. It was a nice spring day. Later, he planned to take Michael to go shooting his BB gun that his grandparents had gotten him for his birthday in March. Well, that had been the plan. Michael was a cute kid, blonde hair, blue eyes, stood 4'8", weighed about 70 pounds. He loved the outdoors, especially fishing. He was a typical boy, and as boys sometimes do, he had recently got hurt while practicing his casting a pretty serious injury that had left his left eye damaged. He had an appointment the next week at Walter Reed Medical Center in Washington, D.C. to see what the best course of treatment would be. By 4.30 on that Sunday afternoon, Michael was gone. The military police were called and the area was searched. Neighbors were talked to, his friends were contacted. 
Some of his friends told stories of bullies at school, teasing Mike about his eye, telling him his parents were lying to him, that they were really taking him to have his eye removed and he would get a glass eye. For a kid with some vision left in his damaged eye, the thought of losing it completely was probably pretty troubling. Yeah. These stories led the MPs and his mother to believe he could have run away on his own. His father, however, wasn't so sure. He had talked to Michael about the trip and the stops they would make along the way, the hotel pools they would get to swim in, the zoos they would be visiting, the animals they'd see there. He thought, if anything, Mike was excited about the trip. It didn't take long before the search was expanded and the Richland County Sheriff's Office was notified. Within days, a reward of $400 was raised by the family and friends of the missing boy. Early on, there were reports that Mike had been spotted hanging out with a large stray dog in the Leesburg Road area of the fort. There were tales of him being seen fishing in Trotter's Pond. His mother said that Mike would sometimes catch fish and sell them to neighbors, so maybe he was catching fish and selling them to support himself. That seems weird. If, I thought that was an odd statement, too. Yeah. Like, I mean, this is a small kid, and even back then, it feels like word would have spread. So if a little kid showed up your at your door trying to sell you fish, you'd be like, hey. Hey, I know you're missing. Right. And this is a military base, so it's not like it's humongous. Um, it, It's a decent-sized base. But, like... And it, it's very wooded, and there are several lakes. Yeah. So, um... I mean, I don't know. Maybe, but that statement seemed odd to it, me. It also. does. It does. And you've got to think this kid has a, an eye injury already. So, he would be pretty easy to recognize. If he came up to you trying to sell you fish, and you see that he has this injury to right. his eye... I feel like you would be like, huh, that's sketch, and then you'd look and, you know, see it on the news. Maybe you're in the newspaper at that time. Right. You know? Okay, so she believed um, that there was a possibility an older child was helping him hide out, like maybe bringing him food and water. And then this theory was bolstered a little bit by his teacher, who reported back to her that a child had brought a canteen to school a couple times, and that was unusual. And um, then again, when his mother was at the store, a kid come up a little bit older than her son and asked after his well-being when he returned home. They wanted to know if he would be punished or, you know, if he would be in trouble when he came back home. And so after that, she made a point to stress to everybody she could that Mike nor anybody helping him would be in any kind of trouble. They just loved him very much and they were concerned for his safety and they just wanted him to come back home. Nobody was going to get in trouble. And she said that in newspapers. She said it to anybody that would listen because she truly believed that somebody was helping him stay out. So, Michael's father, again, was not really on board with his son being out in the woods hiding out. 
He said that Mike wasn't the type of child that would be comfortable staying alone for a single night out in the woods, so he couldn't imagine him being out there for a week. By this point, there were nearly constant searches of the fort going on. They had 400 soldiers with dogs on horseback, riding motorcycles and jeeps, flying helicopters. They float, focused a lot on the Trotter Pond area where there were rumors that he had been seen, but they searched the entire base thoroughly. At some point in May, the father, in desperation, did something completely out of character and he contacted a psychic in the Netherlands. Why the Netherlands? Um, I, I believe because he was a fairly famous psychic because it, it said that he was reported to have had um, a good bit of success in finding other missing people. Hmm. And, hmm. Um, you know, also you got to remember there's no internet. So, you know, if you hear about a psychic, that's probably the one yeah. you go with. You can't Google psychics right. near me and right. pulling so, up. Yeah, I guess that's right. So, you know, if somebody was like, hey, I heard about a psychic in the Netherlands in the newspaper. So, that's probably, you know, where you would go. So, he sent the man, the psychic, an area map. Right. And so, the psychic wrote on it and marked an area of a shallow creek. And he wrote a note saying that that's where they would find the boy. So Find him? Find him. The creek was thoroughly searched, and a lake near it was drained, and they did not find a trace of Mike. They called the formal search off May 12th. So, Major Woodward and his wife were forced to try to get back to some semblance of normal life. They had another child, a daughter, and the Major was a military judge. But he would not give up looking for his son. He would go out and search on his own when he got off work. Sometimes he would get volunteers up and they would go search. Anytime he had spare time, he was out either holding searches on his own um, or getting other people to search. Right. So he did not ever just say, oh, well, you know, life goes on. They've finished searching, so it's over. No, he searched constantly until he was transferred off that base. Did the mom keep searching, or did she just, was she like, oh, life goes on? Um, I don't think she was like, life goes on, but she wasn't as hands-on in the woods looking, looking. Where the father was in the woods searching. Gotcha. So, um... By July of 1972, Ms. Woodward said to that everybody involved thought Mike had been taken, including her husband. Very thorough searches had been carried out by now. The father on his own has been searching, and they have not found a trace. And remember, the father was in the yard with him yeah. when he went missing. So... You know, I'm sure he felt guilty. Right. You know, that he was there. His wife was gone to the store. He was the one there. And so, I'm sure he felt guilty that he wasn't watching the boy a little better. 
Right. But he was cutting grass. They're on a military base. It's, you know, back in the day, you just didn't expect anything to happen. Right. But he, um, at, by July of 72, he also believed that Mike had been taken. They just had not found a trace of him, and there was no other option in their minds. Ms. Woodward said that military intelligence had told her that if Mike was still on the base, they would have already found him. The parents and the military wanted the FBI to get involved, but with no evidence of foul play, the FBI declined. Really? They did not believe he was taken. They felt like he was just lost somewhere. And there was no evidence. There was no evidence of anything. Nobody saw a car speed away. Nobody saw anything other than the rumors of seeing this child fishing and hanging out with big dogs in the area. So there was literally not a trace. Hmm. In May of 1977, less than a mile away from Reed Street, where Phyllis disappeared six years earlier, 12-year-old Brenda Ann Scott was playing at Drew Park with her sister and some friends. A man called her over, away from the other kids, telling her, I'm your brother, come with me. Uh, what? Then he grabbed her and drug her off into the woods. Okay, what does this have to do with Michael? Maybe nothing, maybe a lot of things. This is six miles away from where she disappeared. This is... No, it's less than a mile from where she disappeared. It's six miles from where Michael disappeared. Okay, so it's six, mi- uh, six all of miles. This, all of this is within a ten-mile radius. Got it, and it's the same year, isn't it? It's six years later that Brenda is taken off. Hmm. But Michael disappeared, I believe it was six months after, it was eight months after Phyllis. Gotcha. So it's Phyllis first, eight months pass. Michael disappears, disappears just five miles away. Just five miles away. And, and now then, Brenda. And then six years later, Brenda disappears less than a mile from where Phyllis did. Hmm. And I'm your brother, come with me? Isn't that so strange? That's a weird way. It is a weird thing to say. Of kidnapping somebody. You know, you hear about, oh, I've got candy, or come help me look for my puppy. Never trust anybody like that. But, you know, my brother, like, you don't know your brother? It was a new one for me, too. I was like, um... That's a strange way to kidnap somebody. And she trusted him? No, he grabbed her. He grabbed her and drug her off. He called her over, and she walked close to him. And Mm. then he yelled, I'm your brother, come with me. And she tried to back up, and he grabbed her and drug her into the woods. The other kids ran to get help. Yeah. Um, None of them followed them into the woods, but they did go to get help. Her sister was there, and there were several other kids. Yeah. So they witnessed it. They were able to um, describe the guy. Columbia Police Captain John Earl Dennis was almost immediately taken back to Phyllis's case. 
The similarities were gleaming. A few days later, Brenda Ann's body was found, though. Oh, so this is the first time they found a body. Right. And she was found by some kids playing in the woods. Oh, my goodness. She had been raped and bludgeoned. Police worked around the clock to solve the case, just like they did with Phyllis. But this time, it paid off. While they were interviewing a witness that lived close to the area where the body was found, they were told he could give a, script, a description of the assailant. And they got him to do just that. A police artist sketched out a composite that looked very, very much like the witness himself. Wait, so the witness is telling on himself? The witness described to the sketch artist himself wow i mean it goes along with the whole i'm your brother come with me <laughs> you know yes, he's, criminal, he's a really bad criminal criminal mastermind this guy's not yeah so, um when he was questioned about this quote development lennon moore admitted he had killed brenda cool 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 just like that just like this isn't funny because this is a tragic story it really but is can but... you imagine though that they're like this drawing looks a lot like you <laughs> he's like oh you got me oh uh, yeah you got me guys. was he high i i don't on drugs i honestly do i mean i assume that something was off but i honestly don't know what what would make you volunteer to give a description of the assailant and then go on to describe yourself and then when they confront you with that drawing be like all right you got me i did it yeah it seems like he was trying to waste some time like i i have no idea i just it it was a strange very strange it was a strange turn of events yeah so um he was arrested, and he was later identified by by her sister and the other witnesses as the man who had grabbed Brenda. So, you may think that this would lead to an, a lead in Phyllis's case, or maybe even Michael's, but unfortunately, it doesn't. Lennon Moore was only 16 years old when he took Brenda. Which made him about 10 when Phyllis disappeared. Oh. In 2014, thanks to hard work from Patrick O'Connor, Deputy Director of Emergency Services, and two former detectives that were unnamed, Michael's case was reopened. That made it possible to get Michael Woodward listed in the National Crime Information Center database. And with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, which would make his information on his case visible to law enforcement. Mike's parents had both since died, but since Connor was but Connor was able to get DNA from his uncle and his sister that they will put into the system in case he's ever found, in case they ever find any information. They'll be able to compare. So do you have theories or Okay, so our cases 
it's probably unlikely that a 10-year-old was to capture Phyllis because she was 11. She was, and also she was large for her age. Yeah, she looked older than... Yeah, so it doesn't seem likely that he captured her, and it probably wouldn't be likely that he had anything to do with Michael either. Right. Um... So, but do you believe that Phyllis's case could be connected to Michael's? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think because they're on a military base. When you go on a military base, you usually have to, like, check your ID. I don't know if that okay, was still so the case. Okay, so it in. was not as rigorous as it is now. Because you have to remember, this is back where people are smoking on airplanes still. This is not... This is pre-9-11. Gotcha. So, So basically, you flashed your military ID and drove on. Um, I'm sure there was, but that's just my personal experience because I used to go to the commissary with my grandmother all the time. And it, like, they never asked about anybody else in the car or anything like that. She would just flash her ID and drive right onto the base. They did not search the cars. They did not you know, look in, look under it and all like, now they got the mirrors that they run up under the car and all of that. There was none of that. So it's very different than it is nowadays. And and I don't know that all bases even really looked at the military IDs. I don't, I'm sure that there were certain parts where it was easier to get on base. Um, like I said, I'm just going off my personal experience because we did used to go on the military base all the time and go to the um, the commissary because my grandmother swore they had cheaper groceries. I don't know. Maybe they did. <laughs> I was just a kid, so I don't really remember. But I do remember going because that was, like, the best. Yeah. So, um, it wouldn't be the high-security place that it is now. But I'm sure they would still have checked IDs for the most part. Yeah. But I I want to say that you could get permission to go on the base to um to do certain things like like I know um Fort Gordon for instance has mm-hmm. a golf course. Yeah. And you can go on the base now and go play golf. Yeah. So you know, with all the ponds and everything that they had, it's probably a thing where they would let people on to go fish and, and stuff like that. I don't know that you can say it's a military base and therefore it was secure. Right. Well, the reason I ask is because um, in the case of Michael, if somebody were to take him, I feel like the everybody was notified really quickly Mm-hmm. of his disappearance, it would be unlikely that they would see a small boy, nine years old, in a car with somebody and not be like, hey, little boy, what's your name? You know, just to check and make sure that, you know, because the word did spread fast that this kid was missing. It did, but as a parent, and a parent who has lost children before, you... Like, you go, where is this kid at? And then you start looking around, and then you're like, 
oh man, I can't find this kid anywhere. And then you, you get somebody else to help you look for this kid. And then you start to panic. And then you would call somebody. Yeah. It's not like you're like, where is Michael? Oh no, let me call. Right. So... He did, the person, if they did take him and did have some time. Yeah, they, they would have had some time, if they had a vehicle. And, um, this is, this is, um, this is like a housing area, which would be similar to a, like a subdivision. Yeah. So, it would be similar to a subdivision outside of the military base so you know you drove into it and then there were several houses and you know and then there were a couple other side roads right and then you know you would come back off of it it looks like there was a long road to get to it mm -hmm. but there was nothing there on that road right so once you got out of those houses you know you hit that long road and then exit out so I'm not so sure that they are not connected. I know that, that demographically, they are complete opposites. Right. Male and female, black and white. Blue-eyed, I mean, brown-eyed. Right. Blonde hair, brown hair. They are completely opposites. Different ages also. Exactly. But I think if... I think it's possible that there was a predator that was in the area at the time mm -hmm. and saw opportunity. And he did not necessarily go on to that base to steal Michael. He may have been on that base to go fishing. He yeah. may have been on that base to do anything and just saw an opportunity. So, I'm not so sure with it being that close in time that that it's that far-fetched. But, I don't know. I guess I kind of tend to, what are the chances that there is one psycho and then eight months later there's a completely different psycho but within five miles of each other? Yeah, but also, why would they stop at two? Who says they did? Maybe they moved. Maybe they were military the entire time and got shipped out to a different base. Mm, good point. I mean, maybe That's maybe we're looking at it different. Maybe it was somebody in the military that saw a a chance, an opportunity to get Phyllis, and then did whatever with her, and then saw the same opportunity with Michael eight months later, and then got shipped off. We also got to think in Phyllis's case, she was heading in the wrong direction by herself. She was seen leaving the gas station. It was a dry cleaner. Dry cleaner. She was seen leaving the dry cleaner um, by herself going the opposite direction from her grandma's house. Right. Why would she be going the opposite direction? Well, but, I mean, it could have been any number of things. She could have been going to visit a friend. She could have been, there could have been something else. I mean, she could have seen a puppy and was like, let me help this puppy and followed it. I mean, there is any number of reasons 
Yeah. But we don't know what they are. But she, where the location of the business was, mm -hmm. it was only, it was like a tenth of a mile from her grandmother's house. Yeah. But it was probably um, half a mile to a major intersection. Caution. It was like in a town, in a small, not town, in a small city block yeah. where there were businesses, apartments, things like that. Um, there were some abandoned houses. They were searched numerous times. You know, there were places she could have disappeared. I don't know, and I don't know that she walked down. She maybe just wasn't ready to go back to her grandmother's. Maybe she bought an ice cream, and her grandmother didn't like her to eat ice cream in the house, and so she was like, let me walk this way, eat my ice cream, and I'll come back down the block. I mean, yeah. just because she was walking the opposite way doesn't necessarily mean she left on her own or that she was doing anything nefarious. Right. You know? So, but anybody could have turned down that street and seen her and just a crime of opportunity. And if it was someone in the military, I mean, it was Columbia, South Carolina, yes, but it wasn't as built up as it is now. It right. wasn't this gigantic city that it was now. There are a lot of waterways Charleston is not that far away. The ocean is not that far away. Um, there are a ton of lakes and rivers and creeks and woods. Yeah. There are major interstates. Even then, there were interstates that you could have hit easy and, you know, been anywhere. Right. In a very short time to get rid of a body. So... I don't know. I, I think the timing is suspicious. I think they were very close together. I do not believe that Brenda was at all involved. Yeah, I don't think so either. Um, it, it was just interesting that it happened also so close together. Yeah. And that her and Phyllis were physically very similar. Yeah. Which is where you kind of tend to, you know, lean like, oh, well, these may be connected because they're very similar. Um, but there have been serial killers. There have been people in the in the past that just struck on opportunity and not a type. Right. And so it has happened. And I don't know that you could definitely say, no, it didn't happen in this case. It may not have, but personally... I think they could be connected. Not Brenda, but Phyllis and Michael for sure. Um, another thing that we didn't, I touched on it just a touch, but um, Michael's father was a major. He was a lawyer and a judge. Yeah. And so it was looked into, but I, I really didn't see much about it. So I feel like they pretty quickly ruled out that it was some sort of in retaliation to a legal case. Right. But I do think that that was also something that could have happened. Yeah. Um, That's plausible. Yeah. With him being a military judge, you know, sometimes that's not... 
you know, they're not popular. Right. No judge or lawyer is necessarily popular. You know, you defend people or you put people away and they're angry about it. You know, in the military, you're ruining people's careers sometimes. Yeah. And so, I feel like that needed looked into and they said they did, but um, I really couldn't find any where they had like a suspect in it or, and I'm sure in his career... There had to be somebody. He made an enemy. So, um, the police, the military police, they all felt like it was not connected. Right. But, you know, it is worth mentioning. So, another thing that I think is worth noting is that I relied heavily on newspaper articles um, when I was researching these stories, mostly because any blog, any website that I found all had the exact same information. Right. And very few details, especially with Phyllis, very few details. So, um, what I noticed was that the police put in a lot of work on these cases. Both the city, the county, and the military police. Right. Put in a lot of work. But the media handled them very differently. Oh, really? Yes. And what I mean by that is, and I'm not saying it was better or worse on either one. It, they just were handled very differently by the same newspapers. Hmm. And it, it just struck me strange. Um, with all three kids, the paper was slow to report anything. Really? Yeah. And remember, back then, most newspapers had a morning and evening edition. Yeah. Um, and they were going out every day, twice a day in most cases. And in both cases, there were a couple days. Really? Before the story ever hit the paper. As, in, in all three cases. As someone that has worked in the news before, the news industry, I know that missing children and anything to do with children really are is high priority in the news. So I don't understand why they would... Wait a few days. Well, it doesn't make sense. I don't know if that's something that has changed, or for instance, while I was researching these stories, I came across a story where these two girls had gone horseback riding. Right. And they were supposed to be back at a certain time, and they did not show back up. Mm -hmm. And so the family started, it was a girl and her friend were riding the one girl's horse. And the family started looking. They contacted the other girl's family. They're all looking. They're calling people. You know, police are looking. They find the horse tied up behind a local burger restaurant. Yeah. And um, the girls are nowhere to be found. Hmm. And so the police are called in. They're investigating and everything. Well, turns out, that these teenage boys admitted that they had picked up the girls at this burger restaurant and dropped them off at the bus station, and the girls had run away from home. Huh. Um, I found another girl who also had disappeared, and they were looking for her, and she turned out she had run away from home. Yeah. So, I don't know if that maybe had something to do with it, that um, they would give 
give it a, a few days because you know you've always heard that you got to give them 48 hours before you can say a missing yeah. persons and all and um i know that that's not true now I, I don't know if it was ever true but i know it's not true now and i know that in these cases the police jumped on them almost immediately right so you know i don't know that 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 was the case then but maybe for the newspaper maybe they, they felt like you to... know let's wait and see if they come back before we print it right so maybe that's why because it was about two or three days on each one before they ever printed anything so also um when they did print they printed stories about Phyllis and Brenda less often in the paper. They printed a story about Michael every single day. But... Well, he was white. But... The story they printed about Michael was the exact same story. They just... They didn't Copied change a word. They just... On every single paper, it was the exact same picture, the exact same story, the exact same information. They never changed not one word. They wrote less stories mm -hmm. about Phyllis and Brenda, but Phyllis in particular, when they told information about her, they gave you new information every single time. They said what was being done, who was doing it, who to contact, what who they were talking to what the community had done what the reward was so they were much better stories they were yeah. more interesting stories they were stories that you would stop and read and see if there was more information yeah but there were less of them and so that's what i'm saying i'm not saying that they did one better or worse than the other but i thought it was interesting until the end of Michael's search, they almost never changed his story at all. It hmm. was the same, this kid's missing. Which is weird because his story did have a couple developments, like people saw him at the lake. Correct, or... and none of that was in in the newspaper until further into his search. Yeah, and Phyllis's, they didn't have more information later on. Correct, but they, yeah. the police were giving interviews to the paper, they were, you know, this is what we're looking for. This is what, you know, we think happened. We don't believe she ran away. They were right there in the papers. And it was not that way with Michael. And his parents would give interviews later. Yeah. But in the beginning. And that could be because it was military. Yeah. That could be that the military is a little more closed lip on stuff and, and they just weren't releasing any other information. Yeah. Now, later they did a big story about, it had been a year later, I believe, and they did a big story about how he had just gotten brand new shoes and they were still sitting in the closet waiting for him. It was a real, you Aww. know, terrible, heart-tugging story. Right. But it was like a year later. Yeah. And I, I just found that kind of interesting that there was so much, such a big difference in how they were handled and the, the way they were handled newspaper. by the same newspapers. Yeah, you know, and and like I said, the one was military, so that could have something to do with it. But 
I don't know. It, it just was strange to me. Right. So another thing I found, another thing I found interesting was how well the police and the community worked together where Phyllis was concerned. There was no, you know, you need to stay out of it and let us run the investigation. I don't know if that hurt or helped the investigation. Right. But when the police were not able to canvass the neighborhood, mm -hmm. the citizens were out there doing it. Right. You know, they were searching the abandoned houses. They were searching the fields. And they didn't not trust the police and not give any information. When they found something, if they talked to somebody they thought was suspicious, they went straight to the police. And the police didn't say, okay, we'll look into it. Right. They looked into it. They right. immediately took that information and they looked into it. The people that they found that they gave lie detector tests, those were people citizens had turned in and said, you know, we talked to this guy and something's not right about his story. Or, or we found out that this guy is a parolee or he's on probation from Pennsylvania. You know, he shouldn't even probably be here. Yeah. And, and we talked to him and we know this about him. And the police immediately took their information and, and investigated and I thought that that was so well done. Also, to their credit, the county police, the sheriff's office, was ahead of their time in using certain, um, certain systems as far as missing people were concerned. It was a telephone system, I think, at that point, and um, where they would be able to send out on the wire mm -hmm their missing persons information to other local and further away other states even right to let them know that they had somebody missing and a lot of police forces were not doing this back then and so they were actually honored for their work in missing children in missing cases because they utilized this program that was so new that nobody else was doing. They were held up as the standard for the way to run a missing person's case. Right. And still they were not able to find anything in either of these cases. And that's just heartbreaking. I'm not a thing. Not a single thing. I mean, I don't know, but I I feel like it would almost be easier to find a body than to just never know. Yes. I 100% agree. 100%. It would just be so hard to always wonder, to look, especially like later years, you know, to, if your kid disappears when they're small, when they would be an adult, you're in the grocery store looking like that, that's probably what he would look like. I wonder, is that him? Right. You know, and do you go up and talk to the strange guy and try to feel out where he is in the grocery store, where he came from, who his family is? Or, you know, do you just watch and and think, and I wonder if that was him. Yeah. It, it's tragic. That is tragic. So tragic. It really is. If you happen to have any information, if this jogged your memory, if you were on the base at that time and you think you saw anything, if you were in Columbia and you think you saw anything, you can 
called the Richland County Sheriff's Department to this day about either of these cases. That phone number would be 803-576-3000. Um, you also could call for Michael Woodward, the Fort Jackson Military Police, and their phone number is 803-751-1418. Both of these children are on the, the site for missing and exploited children. So you also can contact them if you have any information. And I think you can do it anonymous there. Yeah, I think so too. So if you know something, say something. For sure. If you'd like to know more about the case we discussed or to see our sources, please visit our website at unsolvedsouthpodca.wixsite.com. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at unsolved underscore south and join our Facebook discussion group where we invite you to share your thoughts, your theories, and to ask questions. If you have any story suggestions, please email us at unsolvedsouthpodcast at gmail.com. We will see you back here every other week for another episode. I'm so excited.